This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Harry Borden. Harry is a London-based photographer and he has spent the last 10 years meeting and photographing Holocaust survivors across the world. His book is called Survivor, A Portrait of the Survivors of the Holocaust. And I have with me in the studio uh, a very special international guest who's made the trip from London and his name is Harry Borden. Thanks for joining us, Harry. Hi. So uh, you've put together a book that has been um, a long time in the making, I believe, about 10 years. And the book uh, is entitled Survivor, A Portrait of the Survivors of the Holocaust. Um, Let's just start off, I guess, with who you are in your day job, because I know that's quite a diverse job as it is, um, you know, being a photographer. But particularly, I know that you are known in the UK as a celebrity photographer and you photographed um, prominent people that I'm sure our listeners would know of, such as Margaret Thatcher. Tell me about your, I guess, passion for photography, how that came about and what you've been doing in your career so far, because I know that you've also got a lot of works that are in the National Portrait Gallery in, in London. And then then we'll move into this, I guess, long-term project that you've been working on. Mm, I mean, I I kind of, my my quest really has been to avoid doing a proper job and, uh, <laughs> you know, as some another photographer said, have a sort of a champagne lifestyle, but sadly on a beer salary. But basically... I, um, you know, uh, at the point when I was at school, I just thought, you know, it kind of had a veneer of glamour. So I sort of, my motivations were quite muddy initially to wanting to get into photography. And it was only when I went to college that I kind of really fell in love with the medium and got influenced by other photographers that sort of meant a great deal to me, you know, like Irving Penn and Richard Avedon and Diane Arbus, these sort of greats of photography who, who sort of, um, subsequently I sort of over time learned with Jewish as well which kind of was interesting but I kind of um, you kind, it's a very fair kind of uh, transparent sort of medium so it's terrifying in the sense that you're only as good as your last job but that's also kind of exhilarating as well because if you um, there are sort of jobs that I've done along the way that uh, at the time seems frivolous and and, uh, and, and annoying I wasn't getting enough time and then nothing stops you getting something definitive and a, and a good example from an Australian perspective is I did a photograph Michael Hutchins uh, a few months before he died and uh, then subsequently the pictures sort of become quite definitive they were sort of used as artwork for the work for the music he was working on and then there's on display at the in Canberra at the National Portrait Gallery but that's what you try and do is um, I, I try and use magazines to add to my body of work and I'm very proud of the portraits of celebrities that I've done and I, you try and get something definitive but fundamentally and I sort of give talks at colleges and I always emphasise this especially in a sort of a de-industrialising world try and do something that you derive intrinsic pleasure from rather than being sort of working for a paycheck and selling your life down the river because even if you're not a success at photography or my brother and sister are both painters you know even if whatever you do creative endeavor you know if you if you're not a success at least you've had an enjoyable life that's a very good point. And um, I know your sister painted that uh, portrait yeah, she did, of you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's on your Twitter account and also mm. on your website, which is a wonderful um, portrait. Yeah. So 
looking at some of the, I guess, work that you have done and now the link into this work, I know that uh, in some of the discussions around this this work, you said that you were giving a lecture and uh, and that and it was about your you know everyday work. And then you announced that you had this intention to to create this project around Holocaust survivors and um, not just. Uh, meeting them, uh, photographing them, and also, I re- guess, understanding their story and their experiences and having them write in their own handwriting a note about their image or their life and mm. what they wanted the reader or the viewer to see or think about them. What brought you to that point of announcing to everyone, actually, um, you know, I, I do this work, which is, you know, really meaningful to me or enjoyable and, you know, it's always a challenge, but now I want to do this as well. And I really, uh, this is, as a, as I said, 10-year pro- project. So, it's mm. something that, you know, there's a lot of commitment too. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Well, I just, uh, I just got to a point where, as quite often is the case, I think if uh, you know, if you sort of see the bigger picture and you're not totally motivated by status and money, you kind of get to a point where you know what is life about, you know. And I wanted to sort of make a contribution, sort of historically, produce something that, poten- that had the potential to be a, a historical artifact. And 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 as I said, was saying to you before was also um, an exploration of my identity, which was kind of quite complex. My mum's, you know, half Irish, half English. My dad's Jewish, but an atheist. His father was from Ukraine. His mother was from Romania. Um, He he was born in New York. Um, His parents came to America as economic migrants. And he, um, you know, started uh, you know he he was uh, you know aware of the holocaust aware of the war he lied about his age joined the american marines and um then then after that went into advertising he was a sort of uh, one of the madmen on on madison avenue uh and, and, and the, the opportunity to be uh, in a new agency in London arose after he'd met my mum and had me. Uh, and so they moved to London and they're working in an, in an advertising in London. And then my dad sort of must have had some kind of a midlife crisis <laughs> and decided to become a farmer and bought a pig farm in Devon. So from the age of seven onwards, I grew up in the West Country in, you know, kind of quite a rural environment. And there were no... There were no Jewish people there wasn't really it wasn't a very cosmopolitan area no. so it was kind of an, uh, an exploration of my identity or part of my identity you know um, as well as as I said a, a an attempt to do something sort of historically significant and profound. Mm. As I was saying off air, Devon is a beautiful place to stay and visit. Um, I did in my last trip to England. But also, when was it that this moment of realisation or understanding that the Holocaust could have touched your family or did touch your family in some way, even if it wasn't direct, you know, that you were Jewish or considered Jewish, even if it wasn't something that you held as a religious belief, nor did your father. But even those German Jews in uh, Germany who identified more as Germans than as Jews uh, or weren't necessarily religious were still, you know, singled out and persecuted and then killed for being born Jewish. What was, when did you get to that point where you're, when you were questioning your identity and starting to understand the complexity of your personal history? 
Yeah, well, it was it was quite complex because I sort of I've always had this kind of quite almost deluded sort of sense of uh, confidence and belief in myself. Uh, and my father, you know, you kind of as a ch- as a child, especially as a boy, you kind of idolise your father. And I and I remember um, sort of uh, you know being fe- and feeling quite good that my father was a bit different. My father sort of first and foremost defines himself as an American. You know, that's his religion. You know, he he has very little regard for being. Jewish apart from, you know, he's a staunch defender of Israel, for instance. But in, in general, he kind of drew, drew, drew a veil over his sort of spirituality. But I, I, I just remember my grandmother came and stayed with us, who was sort of more, uh, you know, maybe more in touch with her, you know, li- having lived in Romania and how life had changed and, and was as equally kind of evangelical about America and, and what all the opportunities that afforded. But she sort of emphasised the positivity of, of this this part of us. Um, and then my dad sort of bringing us down in a, in, in a way, sort of uh, told us about, you know, at quite a young age about, about how Hitler would have killed us because of our sort of genetic inheritance. And it was it's a it's a profoundly disturbing thing a jarring thing and and sort of thrown into further relief by the fact that i sort of was quite a cocky confident little boy you know and then to sort of suddenly learn that a sector of of, of a society would consider me sort of less uh, than other people rather than you know um you know equal is quite disturbing that that my dad suddenly going from a hero to a kind of uh, underclass of uh, and that's what they were in eastern europe i said to, i said to my dad i suggested that we go to ukraine to sort of see where his family were from and his response was you know why would i want to go there they still hate jews you know so mm. i mean he's he's a bit kind of reluctant to do traveling for his own reasons but the point stood really Yes, and that anti-Semitism is still um, alive and well mm. across the world. Yeah. Um, still an issue. And so let's then talk about, in particular, this book and the people that you've met. So you've travelled across the world for this project and even into Melbourne, Australia, um, to to photograph many people here uh, in this area that mm. are Holocaust survivors. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So let's look at, I guess, the method first because that becomes... It's slightly apparent when you're looking at it because it's very natural. And I mean, the paper's amazing too to see it not on glossy paper, but on this mm. really nice um, tactile kind of matte paper. Mm. Uh, but also that, I mean, these people are very natural in their, their stance. A lot of them are looking away from the camera. There doesn't seem to be a lot of artificialness behind it. And what I've read um, from your approach was that you were looking to reduce the amount of implements that you needed uh, mm. as a photographer to be able to take the image to make it that natural. Is that, Can you explain or explore the process that you had with your um, sitters? Yeah, I, I try and avoid kind of, as a photographer, it's very easy to become formulaic. You, you sort of, uh, and especially since I started sort of in the end of the 80s when it was kind of, it, as a medium, it kind of rewarded kind of male traits. I sort of think, think there are female traits and male traits and, you know, we're just people and some of us mm. have dif- different proportions of those traits. But it was all about a sort of a fetishization of technique and it was about stamping people with technique and the technique was kind of quite amazing. And, I, you know, I was a, a, a slave to that when I started. So I liked Nick Knight, you know, who was a fashion photographer and had amazing levels of technique and so mm. on. And now photography is so accessible. It, you know, you have camera phones, everybody 
can take half decent pictures. So photography is free to be about something more interesting, which is about uh, what you have to say for yourself. How do you feel about this? About intimacy, capturing sort of intimate relationships, and that's what I try and do with my portraits, even my portraits of celebrity. You, um, I, I try and have an authentic human exchange and try and record that relationship I had with the people on the day. Um, with um, celebrities obviously you kind of uh have to, it's a bit more stressful because there's prs and you know and so you have to do things on a certain day so you're kind of you can't use available light necessarily but with technological advances now you know digital slrs are a very highly evolved piece of equipment so you you can really pare things down and that's what i did i just used a tripod and and a camera no assistance uh you know on my other shoots you know especially advertising shoots you there might be 20 people there you know all kind of putting their two penneth in and a digital operator um so it was just me and and another person and i mean i try and do that with my portraits generally is just have a bit of a laugh it's also mm -hmm. about as i said the intrinsic pleasure of how you want to lead your life and it's more fun if you don't have any preconceived ideas and you just kind of have a spontaneous human exchange rather than arriving and and sort of stamping someone with some silly technique that will look dated in a, in, in a decade and also the other thing about daylight available light is it sort of has a lineage going back to you know renaissance painting you know one directional lighting it's so simple you know and that's that's why the pictures say, for instance, of August Sander, whose work was greatly constrained under, under the Nazis, still look quite contemporary, apart from the clothing that people were wearing in the 1920s. The pictures mm -hmm. have a sort of modern um, and dateless uh, kind of quality to them. So I was trying to emulate that, really, and, and, you know, do something that will stand the test of time, that won't kind of date, will have kind of a power to it. Well, you've certainly achieved that because you can't tell that they're from, you know, any different period of time or era. And it did actually remind me of August Sander because I studied them and then the Beckers and then mm. uh, Gursky oh, right. okay. being yeah. the final... Love all, love, love all the Dusseldorf uh, school. School, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it did remind me of that level of naturalness yeah. and, it's sort and of scientific method almost. They took it to a science, but this is really it, bringing it back to that more yeah, um, I mean, August I, Sander. And what I try and do is also another thing thing I do you know quite often people ask me about my cameras and stuff I only ever really use a standard lens you know just basically what the eye sees mm. and I don't uh, because pictures to me on wide wide angle lenses or long lenses look like pictures on wide angle lenses and long, they draw draw attention to the fact that they're a photograph whereas a standard lens is just what your eye sees so it's kind of you know the, the photography doesn't get in the way mm. um, and it's sort of simpler you know it has an immediacy to it mm. that you're really there yeah and Let's, I guess, go through some of the people that you've met because I wanted to highlight a few of them to talk about the diversity of experience but also of identity because it was really interesting to me to see what people chose to highlight about themselves. First of all, can I ask, did people arrange themselves and choose the backdrops or was it kind of a dialogue between you? It was a dialogue, really. I mean, although actually having said that, what I tend to do is... Um quite often you know my practice generally is find a space that I find intriguing that has a sort of a graphic tension to it either in, the t in terms of its sort of structure or, or or the lighting you know if there's some weird light happening and then basically just put someone into that space but be mindful of the fact that if you have you're dealing with a person so you don't want them to have hard light that's going to sort of be uncomfortable and then and then just record the relationship I have with that person so quite often you know 
you know, you hire us, you're in a studio photographing somebody, you know, like I photographed, um, what's his name, um, Kanye West. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I ended up photographing him in the goods lift because it's my, it was because when I arrived to do the shoot, he, he, he'd obviously been to Louis Vuitton and he'd been given a bag. And he basically, in spite of the fact that it'd been, it'd been announced that we were going to have an hour and different changes of clothing, he just said that he was going to be posing with the bag in all the pictures and not going to take his sunglasses off. And this is digressing from the book, yeah, not taking no. off his uh, yeah. scarf. So mm. I thought, well, actually, it makes more... He looks like he's coming to the shoot or leaving the shoot. So I put him in the goods lift and... And it made for a more interesting and authentic picture, really. Definitely. And, and, it, and I had the sort of doors closing and he was sort of staring out. And, and it's a good example of the fact that, you know, I don't like having preconceived ideas. I don't like sort of mood boards, as mm. is the case. You know, it's so kind of, um, it's such an industry, printed media in decline. that And there's so kind of money constraints that people are kind of really concerned all the time with, with nailing it down before it's even happened. And the best things happen spontaneously. The things... You're always, like Diane Arbus said, sort of looking for something you didn't know you you were looking for. You know, you're yeah. searching for something that you haven't seen before. You know, that's what's thrilling about photography generally. Yeah, and why some of the best photographers might frustrate the hell out of editors. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then looking at one of the, the people, um, it's on page 38 for anyone who has the book. It's Miriam Finkelstein. And I found her written words really interesting because she said, I think of myself as a person, a wife and mother first and a survivor last. Mm. And I mean, this book is about Holocaust survivors, but it has the full breadth of identifying with or not with actively Mm. against um, being termed a survivor or then or having some form of tension or conflict around that Mm. Um, being la- that, that label, that picture was key, really, because I, I did. I think it was sort of exemplifies um, what several people have sort of asked me. You know, is there sort of some unifying quality that survivors have? And of course, there isn't. I mean, they're all just people that happened in, they, that were in, in this extraordinary event. You know, caught up in this event, and and that's that. You know, she was very keen to assert that. And in, in fact, her son is Daniel Finkelstein, who's a lord. I don't know if you know that, but uh, no. he, he works for uh, the, the Times. You know, he was a, right. an, an advisor to David Cameron. And I remember that shoot very well. She was obviously, he, I can see where he got his kind of intellect from because she sort of was very, um, you know, astute and kind of aware of how what she was saying and, and chose her words very carefully. Mm, and she's looking almost directly into the lens, I think, mm. in, a, in a doorway with this really interesting um, print of a kind of... Yeah, it's hard to describe, but it's a very floral botanical kind yeah. of um, wallpaper. It's sad, it's sad, actually. I should say she died in January. And um, in fact, her son wrote in a, a leader in the Times and happened to mention, you know, the, the portrait. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's kind of that that was actually kind of a sobering. Uh, it made me realise how important it was to get this thing done because um, in the process of uh, finding a publisher, I was really keen that they they were very um, insistent upon the biographical element. So all the biographies at the back mm. back third of the book have been sort of um, historically kind of verified. They hired a, a Holocaust historian, and so it was 
important to kind of um, contact all the survivors and get there. Now that it was a book, to get them to be happy to be in the book, and uh, and during that process of contacting them, I found out that you know between thirty or forty percent of the people I started photographing ten year, almost ten years ago had had passed. Mm, and then so you see some of their family members actually writing or putting their names to yeah, those absolutely. stories. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, it, it just goes to show that it's a really important, I guess, documentary mm. tool as much as it is a personal uh, thing for the families and the yeah. people themselves. Well, I had, I, I, it's been, I've, I've had a great response. I mean, I, I, because I, I sort of wrote to Alain de Botton, a philosopher who, um, you know, he has a very clear way of uh, writing and I kind of thought that you know maybe he could be involved in some way and so because he sort of gave me some input I sent him a copy of the book and he 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 direct messaged me on Twitter and said it was a uh, incredibly moving and a masterpiece and so I knew I was onto something good because that word doesn't get bandied around no. uh, lightly <laughs> I mean I wouldn't use that word because it's kind of like you know it only time will tell but certainly uh, the what I was going to say was the most important people that that I've really enjoyed getting positive feedback from. You can imagine, you know, the families of the people, uh, uh, because I insisted on everybody who uh, uh, participated uh, getting a copy of the book. So yeah. it's been great getting emails from people who who see their their you know their family member you know in the book and you know really don't feel misrepresented and feel that you know that that's you know it's a proud sort of family heirloom mm. on a personal level. And it's something that. It's not a typical historical document, but I think it actually adds a lot more to historical scholarship. Mm. I mean, we are progressing more and more to a humanistic view of history and it's less about facts and statistics. Uh, it's also about the human experience and oral history and um, narrative that, that is around people's experiences of historic events. Mm. And this, I think, really gives a richness to it. Um, and some of the people there who you interviewed or, or spoke to had experienced Kristallnacht as a, as a child um, who have been or were in concentration camps the majority of were in concentration camps across Europe, mm. uh, in, even in Eastern Europe. And another interesting person that I saw there was Inga Auerbacher, and she says um, at the end of her piece, she kind of recites a bit of a poem and she says, I am a star, exclamation point. Mm. And she's wearing her Jude Star of David mm. uh, on her coat or jacket. Yeah, yeah. Is that, was that really the, the Star of David that she had Yeah, at the time? it was, yeah. No, she's a remarkable woman. And, uh, I mean, that th- there's been a f- there's, there are a few really, really memorable shoots and that was definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, and what she, what her poem that she wrote, you know, was, was fantastic. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is quite sort of personally inspiring meeting meeting these people. I mean, I, I was did an interview with uh, Dieter Gould, who uh, runs a gallery in uh, in Melbourne, and uh, I was just the, the the sort of dynamism. She's a great grandmother, and and the day that we did the interview, she's she'd been playing tennis. It was quite <laughs> quite extraordinary. But you know, there is uh, you know, I, I do think I did I do want to emphasise you know the lots. It's a whole multifaceted group of people, it but is. but there are kind of people like D, like Dieter or. Um, Inga that are kind of uh, quite extraordinary. Yeah, and she has this real strength. Defiance, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, in her eyes. She's just mm. kind of looking like, you know, mm. you can't define me. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. And then some other kind of aspects, I guess, of the diversity of people that you've got here is that there are some people like Morris Blick who says that he really wants to honour and celebrate those of us whose rich and full lives have embraced the future. Mm. And so his point was, well, I might, that may have happened, but we should also be focusing on the fact that we're not victims necessarily. Absolutely. We are humans who have had achievements and happiness yeah. and success. Yeah, he's a very renowned uh, sculptor, actually. And uh, I was uh, I was concerned that uh, that he wouldn't... Um, uh, I photographed him and then he kind of... He was he was sort of very reluctant to be to be sort of associated and defined by by the Holocaust and uh, he did and he w he didn't write anything at the time and so I sort of spent a few weeks uh, after that or actually probably a couple of years sort of tra uh, pestering him and sort yeah. of going around and trying to persuade him to because he's got beautiful handwriting he as does, well yeah. and uh, and it's I really like that picture and uh, you know I've won him over and now he's sort of seen the book he absolutely loves it and he was very clear as a as a sculptor he said you know in the end he sort said look it's um it's your copyright you you do it and everything but when he saw the book he was really happy you know well that's good to hear because he he's photographed in his workshop i mm, believe yeah mm. and what about the people who are in melbourne because i know that that there's a quite a great deal of holocaust survivors that you met in melbourne mm. who are some of the people that stood out to you in terms of their stories and i mean i'm sure all of them are fascinating but if what kind of interesting things did you hear from these people in Melbourne? i mean there were the there were the, i think the most unusual i mean i i've, li I've liked them all for different reasons yeah. but um one of them i mean just historically there were two uh, women who are who were sort of mengele twins uh which obviously i don't think there can be many people who survived, survived that yeah. And just so um, listeners know, uh, Joseph Mengele was doing, uh, he was a doctor who conducted experiments at Auschwitz on twins mm. um, and they were very brutal medical experiments. Well, one of them was married and uh, he was intending to, uh, to, for them, you know, treating them like cattle, basically mm. wanting them to um, uh, mate with uh, some male identical twins in order to do research and, uh, you know, their likelihood of having more twins, you know, it was absolutely horrendous. Um, and then there was, a, there, there were, there were there were pictures I really like. There's a, a woman called Bronya Rosenbaum, uh, which I sort of photographed through the typical sort of Aussie fly re uh, screen. screen. And yeah. uh, it has a sort of a painterly quality to it. And, and that, that was another one I was sort of tr um, trying to sort of track her down because it was one. Some of the. Um, uh, what happened was over the course of doing the. Uh, the shoots in London yeah. and then in uh, in Australia I'd sort of do an interview with uh, the Australian Jewish News and sort of get people to come to me and, and, part and to participate and then after I left Australia I got a phone call from or I got someone contacted me called Miriam Hechtman who's the granddaughter of survivors and she sort of enabled because I think it became such a big and, uh, and quite um, intimidating project so she was able to sort of help me get, make trips to Israel and then um, and then New York to finish off with but when I was in before Miriam and her organisational skills I was photographing Bronya and people in around Melbourne and it was kind of quite quite sort of relaxed so I'd photograph someone and they'd say oh I know a survivor go to so I only had addresses and so on and I really liked the picture of Bronya and I was worried I wouldn't be able to sort of get her to find her and tell her about it but I managed to find her son and and he sort of uh, helped uh, initiate the because initially people yeah. she didn't have any recollection of having been photographed because it was like nine years before of course so, yes yeah so it was quite uh, it's last year was quite a, um, uh, a kind of 
you know, it was a we had to be quite rigorous uh, with because I wanted everybody to be to be clear about what they were being involved in, mm. and and so initially, you know, people were had some people had didn't remember me coming round, you know, yeah. so it was quite difficult kind of making that contact again and, and getting things up and running. Definitely, and were most of the people opting into the process, or was there any were there any people apart from the sculptor who you had to really convince no there was a there was another, a woman in london uh who who was uh, has testimonies testimonies on the spielberg uh i think barbara stimler and um and she had a bad hand uh, and oh, uh, right. at the time of i did the portrait she died sadly yeah. but um i couldn't uh, get her to, to write anything and then subsequently uh i sent her she asked to see the picture and she wasn't really sure about the picture and uh you know i think she sort of just felt it was quite intense you know because it's quite difficult to scrutinize yourself mm. uh, in that way because the pictures do have a sort of uh, tension to them uh, and then you know subsequently i that took a bit of persuading but on the whole the whole way i contacted people uh and it meant that there was a self-selecting group of people who were kind of uh up for up for the whole process that's really it's just fantastic and i just want to um i guess highlight one final thing that uh, in the forward by howard jacobson who's a, a british author and a man booker prize winner he talks about or references primo levy's um memoir or autobiography about living in mm. concentration camp and he talks about um something called as though invisibility and mm. talking about i guess the not that these people or survivors were invisible, but that they felt as though they weren't heard or what they were saying about what happened was not really understood or fully sunk in to, mm. to other people. And that's one of the interesting things that I have come across as well in scholarship is that directly after World War II, there was more, um, I guess, consciousness about what had happened immediately. Um, but then there was this need to shove it aside, not only from Holocaust survivors, but also from those who were perpetrating things and or just being um, bystanders to mm -hmm. what happened. And it was only in the 60s and 70s that things really started to come into the light with the Eichmann trial. And mm -hmm. when people were brought to justice, that really started to actually mm -hmm. make people confront this past. Mm -hmm. Were there similar experiences with some of the people you met in, in the sense that they either weren't heard, they felt that invisibility, or they only felt that they were being heard, you know, 30 years on? Yeah, I think I think quite often, uh, not all of them, but a, the signif a significant number of people didn't feel able to talk about it, didn't really talk about it with their family. I quite often heard that from the family that they didn't really, they were, they just wanted to get on with their lives and move on. And then, and then I think that was, it was quite good timing for a number of reasons when I started this project, because, you know, technically, I mean, if I'd been shooting on film, which is where, the way I used to shoot, you know, shooting 200 portraits all around the world funded by me would have been kind of quite a, an, you know, a, a a difficult kind of obstacle to you know just in terms of finance yeah uh, but al but also i think in the past people have not really wanted to engage or talk about it and i think people are reaching the end of their lives and so they they feel it's important to kind of state their experience and their facts as they as they saw them and also i think you know with regard to what howard said you know i i do think it's quite prescient because of in this it's very disturbing all this sort of this idea this sort of moral ambiguity sort of moral relativism you know and 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 this idea that you know somebody 
you know, you do a search for did the Holocaust happen and the first site you come to is a sort of far right search, you know, sort of far right kind of organisation sort of gaming Google and this kind of proliferation of rubbish mm. in relation to the Holocaust, you know. As Billy Wilder said, you know, if the Holocaust didn't happen, what happened to my family, you know. And so it was kind of a, a good rebuttal to kind of Holocaust denial, which to me is kind of you know, so kind of obnoxious. Still existent. And mm. also the uh, the comparisons that are constantly made between Hitler and some other person. Yeah. Um, it's really so unhelpful. Absolutely. Uh, this is an unprecedented event uh, in mm. terms of the, the history and this particular event of the Holocaust. Yeah. It really is unique and you can't compare it to other things. Oh, absolutely. It's just ridiculous to compare. I mean, the, you know, the, Ger the German sort of society, you know, was, was, was very, very advanced, you know, it was, it was the systemization of it, you know, the, the, the peop people, you know, bourgeois people, professional classes sort of, uh, you know, designing and building sort of gas chambers in mm -hmm. a very cold and methodical Germanly engineered way, you know, that's what's so kind of chilling about it. So, Absolutely. yeah, comparisons are kind of, you know, the lots of bad stuff happens, but yeah, it's kind of chilling in a way that um, is, is very disturbing. Well, this book um, really does fill a void, I think, and it does it beautifully and it is a masterpiece. I would agree with Alain de Botton. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm so glad that I managed to get a copy to look through and I'm going to savour it as well and I hope people can check it out. If you're interested, it's called Survivor, A Portrait of the Survivors of the Holocaust and uh, even if you Google it, there are some articles already with um, some of the images um, that have been taken but I would advise to really look at the book because it's completely different to see it on paper in your hands, mm. I think. Well, I was going to say, if, if anyone's in Melbourne, we've got an event on Sunday at the Holocaust Museum. Excellent. So, and where's that located? I, do you know? I should know. <laughs> but it will, there's a Facebook page for the yeah. book as well, so, which will have all the details on there. Great. Well, we'll link that so people can look it up if they're interested. Okay, cool. And also, um, I'm guessing the reason why it's on Sunday is because it's for Yom HaShoah, mm -hmm. which is uh, Australia's particular Holocaust remember, Remembrance yeah. Day, which starts Saturday the 22nd of April in the evening and runs through Sunday the 23rd of April mm -hmm. this Sunday. So yeah. um, this is the, the right time to be talking about this and remembering mm. the people who, um, you know, have suffered and don't have a voice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Harry, well, for coming you. in and sharing your time and interesting stories and beautiful work with us. Yeah, well, thank, thank you. And you're very knowledgeable about photography. I'm oh, impressed. No worries. <laughs> I got a little bit obsessed. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of modernism and also, mm. yeah, that the German photography mm. is Absolutely. fantastic and yeah. often under-focused. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Thank you and have a lovely stay in Melbourne. Thank you.